So forgive my, I'm going to do this every time. I hope you're okay. Just as a reminder, we belong to three, what hopefully will be three eternal families. I am a child of heavenly parents. I was born. They are my, they are my parents, just like Jetty and Tracy are. They're the parents of my spirit. That's family number one. I come to earth and we form earthly families that we're very much trying to make eternal. That's family number two. And then through covenants, we can join the family of Christ and make Christ my father. And I can, this covenant family is family number three. And I would remind you that I, I think, I love the way the proclamation is, is organized because this is how it flows. And if I wanna make this an eternal family, I more fully participate in this family. I, with all my soul, will testify the greatest thing you can do to be a better husband, father, wife, or mother is to be a better child of heavenly parents. Nothing you will do will be a better influence in your parenting than to have those parents influence you. So fully participate in this family. Then I would suggest the second greatest thing you could do to improve your parenting is let this family influence you. Fully participate in the covenant family and allow Jesus and his atonement to change us. Hence, the proclamation says, whoops, we're going to erase these just for the time being. Now, I just want to show you the brilliance. Now, Josh and Jill, who are joining us for the first time, look at the structure of the proclamation. Each of us is a beloved son or daughter of heavenly parents. There's family number one. Husband and wife have a solemn responsibility. There's family number two. And happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's family number three. And the brilliance of this document is just simply that. Let that family influence you. Let that family influence you so that we can make this family an eternal family. Now, that's where we left off. We're trying to let the covenant family influence us. So the next sentence is, successful marriages and families are established and maintained on, and then nine principles. And we looked last time at this first principle, faith. It takes a leap of faith for family to work, doesn't it? It takes a leap of faith just to ask someone to be your eternal companion for life and for eternity. It takes faith in them. It takes their faith in you. It takes both of your faith in a divine power. Faith without our family without faith is just not going to work very well. Having a child. Scary thought. Inviting a child into your family is a leap of faith. Family and faith. So now let's look at these next two. Prayer and repentance. Families work best when we know how to pray. When we pray together, when we pray separately, but prayer becomes a secret ingredient to make family eternal. Now, I love this moment when the disciples of Christ watched him pray. This is this 
This is the spirit in which I want to start today. In Luke chapter 11, they came upon Jesus praying. Can you imagine watching Christ or hearing Christ pray? Now, I don't mean to be facetious and point the finger, but would it sound like the prayers you typically hear in sacrament meeting today? Do you think if we heard Christ pray, it would sound the same as the prayers that we typically utter? I think it would blow us away to hear Christ pray. And after hearing him pray, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of the disciples said, what I know I would say as soon as I heard him finish, what would I say? What would you say? What did they say? Teach me to do that. Teach me to pray. Now, were these little kids? These were apostles. I wonder if President Nelson would still say, Lord, would you teach me to do that? I remember hearing Marvin J. Ashton, an apostle, tell a story about Spencer W. Kimball. He said that Spencer W. Kimball once told him, As president of the church, I thought I knew how to pray. But now I'm really learning how to pray. The president of the church said he was just learning how to pray. So I am going to plead with uh, Lord is it I type attitude today and say, can we all learn to pray better? I know for a fact, and I testify with all my soul, that one of the things I could do to be a better husband, a better father, a better member of this church, is to pray better. So because we don't have a lot of time to talk about how to pray better, allow me to just share one insight that I think he would have us know in order to pray better. I want to talk about what this means. Any thoughts? Every prayer, every talk, my class always ends in, in the name of Jesus Christ. But was it? What does it mean to you to pray in the name of Jesus Christ? Any thoughts? Jill? For me, it kind of means like, I'm not perfect, but Christ was, and he's my advocate with the Father. So like, for his sake, will you please listen to me? Okay. I'm putting Jesus in front of me because... I think there's a lot of truth to that. But in his name. Jill? I feel like he also has, like, that name adds authority, and it brings the spirit. Very good. It brings authority. And again, I'm going to take it a little bit more seriously. I'm going to say it a little bit more reverently because I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. I love that. I think that's very true. EJ? Talking about taking his name upon you as 
from sort of what we learned about that, about how we try to take nature unto ourselves. And so by saying in the name of Jesus Christ, you know, we're saying by saying this prayer, we're trying to be more like Christ or emulate him more, perhaps. Now, we're going to spend some time on that because what you just said is going to change the nature of my prayers. Am I praying in the name of Jesus if I'm asking something that Jesus does not want to grant me? That would not be consistent. If you're doing anything, if I'm doing something in your name, you are going to make sure that I represent you well. If I'm praying in the name of Jesus, guess what that means? All of these wonderful things. But it also means I'm asking for things that Jesus wants to give me. May I suggest there is the dilemma of prayer. Is this something he wants to give me? Now, I fully acknowledge. Let me show you a couple of scriptures, and I think we are supposed to do this. Tell me what Joseph Smith offered up when he walked into the grove of trees. If you want to go to the Pearl of Great Price, verse 15 of Joseph Smith history. Tell me what Joseph Smith says he offered up. And I think this is appropriate. This is we're supposed to start here. We're supposed to start by offering up. Tell me what he offered up. I'm going to put it right there. You see it? Tell me what he offered up. The desires of my heart. I think that's a great starting point. Is I think heavenly I think heavenly Father expects this is me. And this is him. This is Heavenly Father. I don't know if I feel comfortable abbreviating Heavenly Father. That, that makes me nervous, so I'm not going to abbreviate. Okay. I think he expects me to offer to him the desires of my heart. I think that's the... That's the correct offering. Heavenly Father, can I tell you what I most deeply desire right now? And it's about my son. And I offer up my most heartfelt, deepest desires. Now, what is it that Heavenly Father is bringing to the prayer? What is it that's on his mind? If you look at the Savior's, um, the Lord's Prayer, Let's do New Testament version. In Matthew chapter uh, 5, when the Lord is giving what we call the Lord's Prayer. No, chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. Tell me what Heavenly Father is bringing to the prayer. Notice the wording. I'm going to offer up the desires of my heart. And Heavenly Father's sitting there thinking about what? Tell me what Heavenly Father has on his mind. The things he knows I need. Okay, let's talk about your son, Bryce. Guess what your son needs? And I'm talking to you, Bryce. Guess what your son needs right now? Well, I'd like all this problem to go away. I'd like his pain to go away. 
I understand that, but let me tell you, let's talk about what your son needs. Do you see how sometimes those are very different? So I'm going to put over here what I need. Now, prayer is easy when they're the same. Wouldn't you suggest that that's the, that's the ideal prayer when what I'm asking for and what he wants to give me are the same thing? Then I'm praying in the name of Jesus. I'm praying for things that Jesus wants to give me. But what if they're not? And allow me to just push you a little bit to think back through some of your prayers. Have some of them been at odds? What I'm praying for and what he knows I need are not the same thing. Now what do you do? Can you think of a time in the Savior's life where, where they were not in harmony? With what? Can you think of a moment? Are you going to go? Can you think of a moment? Where Jesus said to the Father, this is what I would like. And the Father said, that's not what you need. Or maybe that's not what we need. <laughs> that's not what everyone else needs. What was the moment? He prayed what? Let's turn to it. Now, unfortunately, you got to get poll accounts because Matthew doesn't give us what happens in between the two prayers and Luke doesn't give us the second prayer. So unfortunately, we got to jump in two places. I want you to find Matthew 26 and Luke 22. Matthew 26 and Luke 22, because we've got to read both accounts. Let's start in Matthew 26. Let's hear prayer number one. Now, even though Jesus has that, nevertheless... I want you to focus on what is it that he prayed. Now, prayer number one is verse 42. No, nope, wait a minute. Prayer number one is verse 39. Prayer number one is Matthew 26, 39. Now, tell me the prayer. He fell on his face and said, Oh, my father, if it be possible, this is the desire of my heart. Is there any other way? Can this cup pass from me? Now, how many times have you prayed a very similar prayer? Heavenly Father, can this cup pass from me? Can this cup pass from my family? Can this cup pass? Now go to Luke because you've got to hear Heavenly Father's answer. The very next verse has Heavenly Father's answer in it in Luke's account. So jump to Luke 22. And find that same prayer. Verse 42. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. But I'm asking the desires of my heart that the cup be removed. Now tell me 
what happened next. Do you see it? What happened next? An angel came to what? An angel came to? Meaning what was the answer? This is what you need. This is what we need. And the rest of us up there were praying, please, Heavenly Father, don't take it away. This is what we need. You, this cup is not going to pass. Tell me what the angel was there to say. Without saying the words, what was the angel there to say? This cup is not going to pass. Your son's leukemia is not going to be taken away. Your current conditions is not going to go away. Because I know something that you don't. And I know what you need. And I know the end result of drinking this cup. So I'll strengthen you. But it's not going to go away. Now watch the second prayer. And tell me if you sense the difference. There is a totally different tone in his second prayer. So again, back to Matthew 26. And if you look at the second prayer, it's very, very different. Verse 42 is the second prayer. I'm going to let you just digest it for a second. Tell me what you see in his second prayer. What do you see in his second prayer? Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Now, what I want you to ask, what I want to ask, what was he saying and what was he asking? There's an implied ask here. Even though he doesn't say it, there's an implied ask. What he was saying is an acknowledgement of, this is not what I really should be praying for. In my case, that's the acknowledgement that I am not praying in the name of Jesus. I am not asking for something that Jesus wants to give me. Therefore, I'm going to make a second ask. May I suggest that if we really pray in the name of Jesus, we need to start using a but if not addendum. But if not. Lord, I don't know if that's something you want to give me. So if it's not, let me pray for something I know you want to give me. And then give him an ask that you know is in harmony with what he wants. So what's the ask here? Tell me the second ask in the second prayer. What's the implied ask here? What's the implied ask here? Lord, if this isn't going to, Father, if this isn't going to go away, then the statement is I'll drink it. But what's the implied ask here? Good. Good. And I think what you just said is the implied ask. Don't leave me alone. Help me drink it. 
I think the implied ask here is, I didn't want to do this, but I recognize I need to, so give me the strength to do it. Now, which one of those was most in harmony with the Father's will? To take it away or to strengthen him to do it? Now, do you see the difference in our prayers? Let's practice. My daughter is about to give birth. She's 39 weeks today. She's very, very excited, but little does she know what the next few months are going to entail. <laughs> the sleepless nights. If her son is anything like she was, she will cry through the night. And she will not sleep much. And she will pray like her mother and I prayed many years ago, Heavenly Father, bless this child to sleep tonight. Bless this child to sleep so that all of us can sleep. Now, is that something you're 100% confident that Heavenly Father wants to give me? Because he didn't give it to me yesterday or the day before. And I don't know if there's a lesson that needs to be learned here that I need to learn. And so I don't know if that's in the name of Jesus. So what if I threw in a but if not? Lord, bless my daughter to sleep tonight. But if not, give me your but if not prayer. Jill, give me your but if not. Help me have sufficient energy to deal with it. Very good. Now, is that something that Heavenly Father wants me to have? My but if not was often, Heavenly Father, bless us to sleep. Well, bless us all to sleep tonight. But if not, help me love and feel for this child what thou feelest for this child. When she doesn't sleep. I know he wants me to have that. And whether or not we slept, that was my real prayer. May I suggest then, if I can summarize, prayer number one is often change my circumstances. Prayer number two is usually what? Change me. Change me. Change me. Or probably more accurately, help me change myself. Do you see the difference? Now, I don't think if Jesus prayed that the cup is taken away, I'm not going to stop praying for my cup to be taken away. But I don't know if Heavenly Father wants to take it away. I don't know if that's what I need. And so my but if not is a prayer that I know is in the name of Jesus. Should we do another one? Um, I am pretty sure someone in this building tonight is praying, Heavenly Father, help me find some friends Help me find a friend. 
Help me connect with someone and help me find a friend. It's a good prayer, don't you think? Give me the but if not portion that you would add after that. Anyone want to try? Give me your but if not. Josh, what would your but if not be? But if not, help me to find someone that needs a friend. That I know he wants to give me. Now, prayer number one is usually change my circumstances. Prayer number two is change me. It is my testimony to you that if we pray better, if we pray in the name of Jesus, our families will be more successful. Our marriages will be more successful. Learn to pray. Lord, teach me to pray. Any thoughts on prayer? So I just have a question. I'm curious, when you hear other people say, in Jesus' name, amen, does that mean it's wrong? No. I mean, I, I, think, I think offering up the desires of our heart, I mean, was it wrong for Jesus to ask that the cup be taken away? I don't think so. I don't know that that's wrong. I think it becomes wrong when we say, this is what I want and this is what you're going to do and I won't accept anything else. C.S. Lewis said it once this way. I just thought this was a very eloquent way of saying it. He said, I have heard, oh, sorry. I have heard a man offer a prayer for a sick person which really amounted to a diagnosis followed by advice as to how God should treat the patient. And then sometimes we stubbornly say, this is, this is the only thing that I want right now and you're gonna give it to me. That's where I think we border on, that's probably not in the name of Jesus. But as long as it was okay for the Savior to say, is there another way? Nevertheless, but is there another way? I'm not going to stop praying. I'm not going to stop offering the desires of my heart. But I think the, the power of the prayer comes in the but if not. Give me strength to drink it. Does that help? Yeah. Josh. Um, just like a, I think a clarification, maybe, I guess another way to think of it. Um, when we pray, should we say specifically in the name of Jesus Christ, amen? Or is it okay to say like in Jesus' name, amen? Oh, the formality? I don't think we should. Here's the thing is if you're worried about it, that it's interfering with the, uh, the, the real talking to him, then it's too much. If it becomes really, really casual and you don't care what the right thing to say is, it's too little. So somewhere between too much and too little President Nelson is starting to ask seminary and institute teachers to push us more towards the, to teach the formality of prayer because he's starting to notice that we're becoming very casual in our prayers. And so I think the idea is there's a little bit too casual and, that, and yet there's, I'm so worried about the formality that it's losing my effectiveness because I'm, did I say it right? Oh no, I said you instead of thou. You know what, if you're stressing over that, Maybe you've gone a little bit over here, but should I say thou instead of, yes, I should. And so do you see that balance? It's between, you know what? How does the sacrament prayer do it? 
it states his name first, right? O God, the eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ. And then how does the prayer end? Amen. (laughs) So is it okay that we not necessarily follow a set pattern? And if it's not always in the name of Jesus Christ, and does it need to be in the name of the Lord and Savior? You know what? I think there's a balance between too much and too little. So helpful? Prayer? Okay, we've got uh, 17 minutes. Let's do repentance. Um, That's a hard task to do repentance in 17 minutes. Um, Let me just start with an observation. I can think of at least two scriptures in the Book of Mormon that say faith is blank. Faith is. The Book of Mormon doesn't hesitate to define faith. There is not a single verse in the Book of Mormon that says repentance is. Now, my observation is that we as church members don't like to undefine terms, and so we like to fill in the blank. Repentance is. And so over the years, we've come up with all sorts of repentance is. And sometimes we have lists, and sometimes, I don't know if you've ever taught a list, the five R's of repentance. And there is a real danger in that because you sometimes think, well, if I don't complete one of the R's, I'm not repentant and I'm not forgiven. So allow me to just ask, how does the Book of Mormon teach repentance? It does not define it. Rather, tell me what it does over and over and over again. It shows you repentance. And every example is a little different from the last example, right? They say different things. They do different things. They don't follow through the same. And what's the message? There is a commonality. If you were to, now this year and come follow me, let me throw that out as a challenge. As you read the Book of Mormon and come follow me, make a mental note of all of the different ways repentance is illustrated. And you're going to notice a lot of differences. Now your assignment then is to say, what is the similarity? What do they all have in common? Now, to answer that question, let me take you to the Bible, which does define repentance. And I think that's fine because the Book of Mormon then says, well, I'm going to spend page after page after page illustrating it. But let me give you John. Now, who is the prophet of repentance? Who is known as the prophet that, decri- that cried repentance in the wilderness? John the Baptist, I think we can all agree, was the prophet of repentance. Jesus calls him kind of the prophet of repentance. So what was John's message? Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Let's see if we can identify how does, John, how does John the Baptist define repentance? New Testament, Luke chapter 3. Now, there is a very important Joseph Smith change that's in your appendix. It's too large for the footnotes. So find the JST for Luke chapter 3. Those of you who have print scriptures, you're going to look for... Uh, verses 4 through 11. Find the JST of Luke 3, 4 through 11. It's in footnote 4a. So go to footnote 4a, tap on that, and then you'll have both of those. Have both of those windows open so that we can see them both. Let's let John define repentance. Repentance. 
All right, starting in verse 2, John, Luke chapter 3, verse 2. <clears throat> so in the days of Annas, Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance. There it is, the baptism of repentance for the remissions of sins. Now, what was his message? Now, there's going to be a change here, but let's just stay with the King James Version for a second. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, my observation is most people read this and make a disconnect. That John came and preached repentance, and John is the voice in the wilderness. Change it just for a minute. Repentance is the voice in the wilderness. John is preaching repentance, and repentance says what? Tell me what repentance says. Repentance says what? Get him into your life. Prepare the way and get Jesus into your life. Now, what are some of the obstacles? Look at verse 5. What, is, what are some of the reasons Jesus can't come running into my life? What's between he and I? What's between him and me? What's between him and me? A valley. My sins, my attitude, my thoughts, my life created a valley between me and the Savior, between the Savior and me. Is that right, English? Between the Savior and me? Is it Savior and I? Between... I don't know. We got what you were saying. All right. Again, back to the prayer issue. Let's not let the language interfere with the message here, all right? There is a valley between Jesus and Bryce Dunford. So my job is what? What is my job? To fill the valley. Or what's another image here? What's another reason Jesus can't run into my life? I've put up a mountain, right? So what is repentance? Tearing the mountain down to let him into my life. Repentance is simply getting Jesus into my life. It's not a checklist. It's not a process. Repentance is getting the Savior into my life because I've pushed him away. And what they all have in common in the Book of Mormon is every single one of them is truly inviting Jesus into their life. Again, let me quote C.S. Lewis. I love how C.S. Lewis said it this way. Repentance can be on very different levels. At the lowest, what we call pagan penitence, there is simply the attempt to placate a supposedly angry power. I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Let me off this time. At the highest, at the highest level, the attempt is rather to restore an infinitely valued and vulnerable personal relationship which has been shattered by the action of one's own. If forgiveness in the crude sense comes as remission of penalty, if forgiveness in the crude sense of remission of penalty comes in, it is valued chiefly as a symptom or a seal or a byproduct of the reconciliation. 
Repentance is fixing the relationship. Not fixing the damage. Repentance is getting Jesus back into my life. Now, can I do that on a daily basis? I don't know that I can check off all the R's of repentance every single day. But sometimes, you know what? I did something this morning and I pushed him away. And I'm going to get him back. I'm going to send the message that I want him back. However you do that, get him back. Now, this is where we need to pick up the JST because I love what Luke really did in the Joseph Smith translation. Let's pick it up here. I'm going to go back to verse 4. So this is the JST of Luke 3, verse 4. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Behold, he shall come. If you get Jesus back in your life, give me the verbs. Personalize the verbs to you. If you get Jesus back in your life, tell me what he will do. Focus just on the verbs. There are things he will take away. Lord, I need you back in my life because there's things I need you to take away. If I get him back, there's things he will bring with him. I need Jesus in my life because of what he's going to bring. I need to gather He will gather those that are lost, even the dispersed and the afflicted. If you get him back in your life, what will he do? I love these last ones. If you get Jesus back in your life, he will prepare and make possible. Repentance is simply the act of restoring the relationship that I damaged. And, and getting him back in my life. Now, let's go to the Book of Mormon. And you tell me if you see that. Throw out a repentance example. Let's turn to, who do you want to turn to first? Alma the Younger. So let's go to Alma chapter 36. See if you see that invitation of Jesus to come back in my life. Alma chapter 36. Notice he's wading through the affliction. Let's use the blank one. Alma 36. He's in agony. And then he remembers his father to have spoken of the coming of one Jesus Christ, a son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. Now as my mind caught hold upon this thought, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me who am encircled in the ball of the gall of bitterness. Uh-oh, he didn't check off all the R's of repentance. He didn't go back and we can get so caught up in the formality that we miss the essence. Would any of you argue that Alma got Jesus back in his life? If you heard that sincere prayer, would you run back to him? That's inviting the Savior back. 
I'll do one. Let's do, Al, let's do Lamoni's dad. Alma chapter 22. Turn to Al, let's do Lamoni's dad. Listen to this prayer. Now, did Lamoni's dad have some very serious things of which he needed to repent? I think we can acknowledge yes. Now, you, you read this, you listen to this prayer, and you tell me, if you were God, would you go rushing back into this man's life? Has he torn down the mountain and filled the valley? Here's the prayer. Oh, God, Aaron hath told me that there is a God. If there is a God, and if thou art God, would thou make thyself known unto me? And I will give away all my sins to know thee. Did he check off all the boxes? Did he just get the Savior back in his life? Now, sometimes it's not what we say. And again, I don't want to present this as something you have to do, as rather I want to present this as you tell me if this person, if these people have torn down the mountain and invited the, the Savior to rush back into their lives. Let's turn to the sons of Mosiah. Go to Mosiah chapter 27. After they were struck down by the angel. Now, it could be argued that being struck down by an angel is not repentance. An angel coming and scaring the living daylights out of you is not repentance. So how did they manifest their repentance? Now, let me read this verse and you tell me. If they've torn the mountain down, this is Mosiah 27, verse 35. Again, this isn't their prayer. We're not reading their prayer. We're just watching their life. Let's just watch their life after they've made some mistakes. You tell me if they've torn the mountain down. Mosiah 27, 35. Mosiah 27, 35. And they traveled throughout all the land of Zarahemla and among all the people who were under the reign of King Mosiah, zealously striving to repair all the injuries which they had done to the church. Confessing their sins and publishing all the things which they had seen and explaining the prophecies and the scriptures to all desire to hear them. Now, let's read specifically one of them. Those five were the sons of Mosiah and Alma. But turn back to Alma chapter 36 and listen to what Alma says to his son. And again, I'm not saying we all have to do this. This is a checklist. This is simply a manifestation of someone who wants the Savior back in his life. And so Alma says in verse 24, Alma 36, 24. I have from that time even until now, have I labored without ceasing that I might bring souls unto repentance, that I might bring them to taste of the exceeding joy of which I did taste, that they might also be born of God and filled with the Holy Ghost. Would you rush into that life? Is that a young man who is tearing down the mountain? However you do it, get Jesus back into your life. Let me do a negative one. I think it's worth doing. 
Let me show you what repentance isn't. The Zoramites were kind of rebuked by Alma because of why they repented and why they should have repented. Do you remember that conversation? Go to Alma chapter 32 and tell me what they had not done or why are what's the source of their repentance and what should it have been? Alma chapter 32, he rebukes them. Let's start in um, 12. Let me paraphrase 12. I say unto you, it is well that you've been kicked out of your synagogues that you may be humble. Now jump to 13. And now because you are compelled to be humble, you are compelled to be humble. Blessed are you for a man. Sometimes I love that addition. Sometimes if he's compelled to be humble, he seeks repentance. And now surely whosoever repenteth shall find mercy, and he that findeth mercy and endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And now, as I said unto you, because you were compelled to be humble, you were blessed. Do you not suppose that they are more blessed who truly humble themselves because of the word? Yea, he that truly humbleth himself and repenteth of his sins and endureth to the end, the same shall be blessed, much more blessed than they who are compelled to be humble. The number one reason people are compelled to be humble today, they got caught. Their wife found their evidence and they got caught. Or their parents or whatever. They got caught, so they put on the show of repentance because they got caught. That's not repentance. Repentance is getting the relationship fixed and getting him back into your life. Can I do another one? Good. You've censured me! Is a great example. So, two righteous men yep. trying to help each other out. I, I... Great example. Now, can I just leave you that as homework for Come Follow These this year? As you read through the Book of Mormon, notice how the Book of Mormon is illustrating repentance. And you will fill volumes. And then when it's over, sit back and say, okay, the Book of Mormon did not define repentance. It did not say repentance is. Rather, it showed me so many different examples and I can see an underlining, I can see what's common among them. And I would suggest it all comes down to fixing the relationship. Therefore, that being said, what is repentance in a marriage? It's more than saying you're sorry, isn't it? It's mending the relationship that you broke. Now, may I just leave you with this thought? 
this is Christ, this is me, and this is my spouse. And sometimes I build a wall here between my wife and I because I said something I shouldn't have. Or I did something I shouldn't have. And now there's a wall here. The best way to fix this wall and to shorten this space is what? Fix this wall and shorten this space. If I focus on shortening this space, what will happen to the two of us? Now, that doesn't mean I don't need to fix the relationship. I do. But the greater need is to fix this relationship in addition to this relationship. Repentance is getting the Savior in your life, in your family, in your marriage. Because when He comes, He takes away. He brings. He restores. He resurrects. Can Jesus resurrect broken marriages? He can. If he can resurrect broken bodies and dead bodies, can he resurrect dead marriages? He can. But you've got to get the relationship restored. I leave you my testimony that family works best when we repent. When I am constantly in an act of trying to get Jesus back into my life, and she's doing the same thing, and I'm doing that with her and him, there is magic in that home. Of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.